And I didn't, I wasn't sure if I was going to ever get to do that again. But after a month off, we are back in Westeros. And I'm very excited because this is an episode that I had requested even before I even started a podcast because all the people, if they don't uh, read the books, they don't know why so many of us have so much affection for everybody's favorite curmudgeon, Stannis Baratheon, the one true king. And I have a great guest here to talk about all of uh, Stannis's northern adventures, which weren't in the show. So we have uh, Jim McGinn here to talk about uh, all of Stannis's northern adventures, and I'm super excited to have all of his military expertise. Jim, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? So I, I always get nervous when people say that I'm a military expert or possess military expertise because I'm a complete autodidact on this entire thing. Uh, I just started studying counterinsurgency warfare when I was bored uh, one day, and then it's just been off to the races ever since. But uh, I, I like to consider myself a military enthusiast, <laughs> uh, especially about military history. So I, that I think is, uh, that's going to be my hedging of the bets for my little intro spiel. I wipe for wars and politics of ice and fire. And, uh, Jim and I have, uh, have we been on one panel or two? Uh, we were on the, the Black Fires Five Generations of Strife, which, uh, was yep. a certain, were you on the Stannis one that I was on? Yes, yes, I, I was on the Stannis one. Cause we, that was with, also with, uh, Sean from, uh, History of Westeros. Right. Awesome. So uh, we've been on two panels before. We've been on a Stannis panel, and we're both uh, Stannis enthusiasts. And, you know, the, the biggest disconnect maybe in uh, of, of all of the, the disconnect between show-only people and uh, book readers is Stan, uh, Stannis had all of these really rich plot lines in A Dance with Dragons that the show really didn't focus on at all. They gave some of the plot lines to John, but mostly it was just kind of cut out and the John stuff was spread a little bit over, uh, seasons five and six. But Stannis really, um, if, if you're somebody who likes the, just the, the military aspect of A Song of Ice and Fire and, and the campaign of uh, the War of the Five Kings, which by Dance of Dragons was pretty much kind of over. There weren't very many kings left, and some of them, well, most of them had died. But Stannis, who saved the wall, uh, got to really have sort of a second life after sort of doing Sweet Fuck All in uh, A Storm of Swords. Yeah, well, I think it was actually kind of a fun fake out with Stannis, where you just you don't know what's going to happen. He has this disastrous loss at the Blackwater and he just disappears and you're saying, well, well, what's going to happen? And that way, and then of course, you know, the rest of Storm of the Swords is so white knuckle action that you just kind of forget about it because you have more things that you're looking at and more things you're paying attention to that suddenly when Stannis comes out at the battle beneath the wall to save the, the bacon of the Night's Watch, it's just, it's a triumphant moment and you feel you're you're excited when you read the chapter. Your heart's pumping a little bit, but you're like, "Wow, that's great!" And then you just kind of appreciate the novel for for doing that for you, for giving you this you know lead in desperate moment, and then it comes back. And then when you examine the narrative as a whole, and you see Stannis's change in his character, which is uh, basically you know, meant, I wouldn't say mentored along, but guided along by Davos into being a more superior version of himself, where he's a, a better king for it, then you can appreciate it that way. 
because you see our your protagonist character, Davos, who's one of the best POV characters and certainly one of the most sympathetic characters. Um, I think he's the only one who is in poverty. And even then, he's not really in poverty. He's he's ennobled poverty. So you get to see him create a positive impact towards the king. And then you just the the novel is just it it comes alive. Yeah, I think for a lot of people who really like Stannis, yeah, the the reason behind that really lies with with the way that Davos really sells the character, and especially for the for the show, the just the, the way that Davos evolved into such a uh, important character later on was was exciting to see because he is he's kind of one of the most pure of heart of all of the uh, A Song of Ice and Fire characters. He's very relatable and. Literally, we find out in Dance with Dragons that he decides, in, in lack of any other uh, deity to worship, he, he says that Stannis is his god. And if that's not a endorsement of a person, I, I don't really know what it is, especially coming from a guy who's not really much of an ideologue like Davos. Yeah, and um, it, it, it's interesting because he, he has his own... I mean, obviously, he wants the the best life for him and his sons, and then then he loses half of them in one battle, uh, and he still wants what's best for the rest of them. I also like how the novel itself kind of answers the question of Melisandre when they're rowing the boat, and uh, Melisandre says, "If you have if half of the onion is rotten, you have a rotten onion." But then later on. It, someone said, oh, well, half of the onion was rotten, but that was okay. He just cut off the pieces that were rotten and ate the rest of the onion. And it's it's really funny, that kind of really subtle dig at the idea of, you know, he is a he is a a character who's, you know, a little crooked. He's and he, he has his own life of crime behind him, but he wants to do the right thing and he acts to do the right thing in the way that he knows best. And that's very admirable and very human. And I think that's one of the best things. I think my favorite thing in Davos's chapters is when he's in the uh, when he's in the prison in the Wolf's Den, and he writes that the letters to his family, and he says, you know, I didn't do so, uh, I didn't do so wrong. I, you know, I rose up to become a king's hand, and he says, you know, I was a better smuggler than I was a knight, a better knight than I was a lord, and a better lord than I was a husband. I'm so sorry, Maria. I do love you. And it's like you you can see this idea of he's looking at what he believes to be his absolute and utter end. And that's just kind of the measure of who the, the character is. And that's why I like him, but I don't think we're here to talk about Davos because I think everybody uh, will agree that Davos is the best. And it's funny. Um, just looking at all of the, the Stannis at the wall is really my favorite. It, it, wait, during my first read of the series, it was where I really started to understand why people love the character and Davos isn't, I'm not even sure he gets a single chapter at the wall because by the time his first one in Dance with Dragons, he's uh, off with Salador Sand to White Harbor. But the rescue at Castle Black, the the bailing them out after a really really bloody battle. John is wounded. Uh, the the troops have come up through the wildlings have come up through Moletown. They're attacking, and Mance has just gotten so many troops and. Castle Black is not doing so well at the end of A Storm of Swords in terms of troops. Stannis comes to the rescue. He's the only one. And what I really love about A Dance with Dragons in the prologue is because we don't have a point of view chapter and I, I, 
you have a, a lot to say about the way that George R. R. Martin writes these battles, and uh, it, it, it's exciting that we get the uh, in in A Dance with Dragons in the prologue how we learn exactly sort of how the how the wildlings got romped by Stannis's cavalry. Yeah, well. The one of the things to recognize in, in medieval warfare is that if, if you had a good kit of armor, a good solid plate armor harness, it was very difficult to pierce that, especially with a technologically inferior enemy that the Night's Watch, is, or not the Night's Watch, the, the Wildlings are. Uh, the Thens use bronze, and if you're using bronze, I mean, bronze and iron, you can say... Well, there's this advantage and that advantage. Uh, iron is iron weapons were easier to to make uh, because you needed for for bronze you needed to have copper and tin, and those don't co-locate naturally, so it limits the size of your army. And when you were able to just get ferrous smelting, you could make out big and ugly iron weapons, but they were still effective. But when it comes to steel, there's just no comparison. Steel is an evolution of metal when it comes to iron or bronze. And so if you have a good, solid uh, steel harness, they're not cutting through it with their, with their, with their just, frankly, inferior weaponry. And so you, you become essentially, especially when you have your heavy cavalry, you're a tank. You can move about the battlefield quickly and just crush formations. And certainly the fact that the, uh, that the, not, or that Stannis's uh, reinforcements and then the uh, the reinforcements from Eastwatch were able to surprise them. Uh, this is actually common in warfare. Uh, there have been times where units have absorbed tremendous amounts of casualties and frontal assaults, but they've still been able to maintain unit cohesion. Uh, the best example I can give is uh, Meredith's Iron Brigade at Gettysburg. They were ordered to cover the withdrawal of Reynolds' first corps, they said, hold to the last drop of blood. And they lost maybe three out of four members of their unit, but they were still able to withdraw in relatively good order. Whereas if you're flanked, the surprise and the panic can set in. And if people start to rout, then more start to rout and more start to rout. And eventually it reaches this critical mass where the unit just breaks apart. And then they're no longer fighting as a cohesive force. And then when they, when they don't fight as a cohesive force, they don't maintain formation. They can be picked apart and destroyed at leisure, especially if one side has cavalry and one side doesn't. Uh, in me- medieval warfare, the pursuit was the most dangerous phase of battle when one side had broken and the other side was running them down. And that was where I mean, cavalry could truly shine and just inflict massive amounts of casualties on the the losing army and especially the the ones who are the bravest ones the ones who stand and fight well then they get surrounded and killed and then they're not the ones that uh, live to fight another day it's only the the guys that are more likely to break the next time because they've just been on the the, the losing end of a battle they might even turn into the the broken men that Septon Marable talks about and that sense of uh of of just formation and uh cohesion really made the difference in the uh battle beneath the wall because you have Mance's Mance's uh forces number tens of thousands, some some would say hundred thousand, probably not that many, but they just dwarfed the size of Stannis's army, and yet his well armed, well protected, well trained 
cavalry just go in and totally, I mean, obviously they have the element of surprise, but even beyond that, they were really just making mincemeat of these people who totally had the wall at their mercy. There's basically no Brothers of the Night's Watch left. They're wounded, they're tired, they're out of arrows to fire. Um, I, I guess the big difference between the way that it played out in the books and the show is uh, they... Um, they're just basically they're, they're, the battle. Um, the battle actually physically at Castle Black was uh, w- over well before the rest of it was happening in uh, in the books. And by the time Stannis gets there, he's basically the only people fighting Mance because the, the the Night's Watch is is pretty pretty toast at that point. And they would have they would have fallen. I don't know. Probably hours later, had it not been uh, for Stannis arriving at Eastwatch and then taking his troops to uh, go over there and uh, really route them, which was uh, certainly uh, exciting. I would have loved uh, exact play-by-play, but as you noted earlier, um, before we started recording, play-by-play is not George R. R. Martin's, uh, that's not his MO for the way he writes battles. No, no, he's really more into big moments and making sure that each one of them underlines the aspect of the story. Um, it's interesting because the, the Night's Watch, or not the Night's Watch, the Wildlings actually have a good formation where they're using these jar, these large mammoths and giants as their solid fighting core because the mass of them can really anchor the battle line. And you even see that the, the giants and the mammoths, they're the ones that are able to hold strong against Stannis' army until the other uh, two wings sweep in surrounding and flanking them. Uh, so you can actually see that, I mean, Mance Raider is no fool. I mean, certainly he's got a lot on his mind because he, they're fleeing what is essentially Armageddon behind them. They're hungry, tired, and desperate. So that's going to be tough to keep cohesion. But he's king beyond, uh, king beyond the wall for a reason. He, he's able to wrangle all of these guys into a single thing. It just it wasn't enough. He, did not, he was not able to overcome the technological advantage that the way that, uh, that uh, Stannis and the Night's Watch were able to bring, especially since with the reinforcements from Eastwatch, that gives Stannis's forces local knowledge, the ability to move uh, along difficult and unknown terrain very rapidly. So because Stannis was able to basically talk to and help and make an alliance with the Eastwatch folks, or I wouldn't say alliance because that, connotes you know that's really goes against the idea of the night's watch neutrality but yeah and that's uh something that they uh that's kind of a recurring theme in a dance of dragons as well well yeah and especially since that's one of the administrative problems that Jon snow has i mean i know a little bit later i mean going jumping a little bit ahead when Jon snow is advising stannis about what he needs to do in the north it's interesting because that's Jon snow trying to handle administrative and political task, not, not the action hero task that is more typical of conventional fantasy heroes. That's actually, I mean, you see that this is similar to what Daenerys is doing when, you know, she can, she can take out Astapor and, uh, but when she gets to Marine, she realizes that, that there's administrative and political elements that she needs to consider because when she did that to Astapor, she's like, all right, I handled the situation. Now I move on the way a conventional fantasy protagonist would then, well, the council gets deposed and Cleon, the butcher King comes down. And now as Quentin Martell says, it's hell on earth. And so she realizes that there are administrative and political problems that she needs to solve. And it's the same thing with Jon Snow. He knows that he can't just 
have the watch declare for Stannis. But at the same time, if he's not going to help Stannis, then Stannis is going to be fighting one armed against the uh, the Boltons that killed uh, John's. Uh, I, I we're, we're okay with saying the uh, the true parentage of Jon Snow, right? Oh, of course. Okay, so so the um, they're not. He's not. Rob is not his bro- his true brother, but he is his brother by upbringing, and so. Uh, well, I guess I shouldn't say that because I mean. I, I would say that actually a brotherhood founded in shared upbringing and mutual respect is as true a brotherhood as any. But I would say, okay, so not yeah. a biological brother, but he, but his brother by upbringing uh, was killed by Bruce Bolton's treachery. And so if he doesn't advise Stannis, then he's going to, uh, you know, he's not, then Stannis might be hobbled in his fight to bring the Boltons to justice. Which is interesting because Mr. Amon. Before before the battle, he had sent ravens basically to everybody. He sent them to all five kings, so he wasn't playing politics there. And traditionally, when the Night's Watch has been facing wildling attacks, they do get some help from the Umbers at Last Hearth. Uh, Moletown, obviously, uh, you had the people there had re- retreated to Castle Black. So there is some cohesion between... Uh, there is historical, contextual cohesion between the Night's Watch and then other people in the North, which obviously gets complicated when the realm is split up into five separate factions not counting the people who are neutral but it does kind of beg the question it would have been kind of fun to have a chapter where maybe john or Amon or some of the other uh elders in the night's watch uh malister or uh those people had just uh sat around and said okay i know we don't have to to um or or, or just sort of talked about okay we're not picking kings and yet there, there, there is a natural sense of uh, you have to you have to deal with the cards not only that you're dealt but then the ones you get back and they don't want to pick kings but Stannis Stannis shows up so they have to spend most of the Dance with Dragons walking that tightrope of uh, you know how to how to not play politics when politics is inherently part of the game. Yep, I mean and that's that's the thing. Any institution will have politics. I mean. The, uh, in the military, there's this idea of the apolitical general, which was really emphasized by William Tecumseh Sherman. But uh, I will tell you this, every flag officer that exists is, exists in the army and everyone that will exist in the army and everyone that has existed in the army of whatever nation, whatever flag, it doesn't matter. Every flag officer is a political creature. And it's just that's just how it is. And they have to deal with that and they have to deal with other entities in politicking as well. I mean, you should see the uh, the debates when Truman was about to was to slashing the budget, for the defense budget by about 70 percent. And so the army generals and the Navy admirals and the Air Force, um, which was a new branch at the time, it was for. Uh, founded in 1947, you know, the knives came out and they had to go and basically argue for their, their right to exist. Uh, if you ever get a chance, you should read about the revolt of the admirals where, I mean, Chester Nimitz and all of these guys were going up to Congress and saying that you can't just use this atomic bomb strategy because it's immoral and horrifying. And you'll notice uh, that a lot of the Navy criticism got a little muted once we developed submarine launched nuclear missiles but that's a story for another time it's i I always kind of um the night's watch as an idea is something that everybody can kind of uh 
understand they're supposed to be neutral and all of that, but just just the the the, the reality of the situation, especially when John is elected uh, Lord Commander, and that's set against the backdrop of Stannis saying, "Hey, why don't you leave this place that you're really not supposed to leave?" Although you know, from the show, we obviously know that he uh, does end up leaving under pretty much exactly the same circumstances, plus the whole death thing, but. Um, when it comes to Stannis, uh, John can say no. Everybody knows he's a member of the Night's Watch, but he's also a Stark, or everybody thinks he's a Stark. And just it, it's so hard to to really the the Night's Watch is so inherently entangled with Northern politics. I mean, the first time we understand the Night's Watch is through Benjen in the series is through Benjen Stark being physically present at Winterfell, kind of not even really. They're not in the same way that um, Yorin goes around traveling for troops. He's there essentially really as an extension of the Stark house representing the Night's Watch. It's it's messy. Oh, and then we find out that Mance was also there later <laughs> on, uh, who is also, to make things messier, you have Mance Raider, the King Beyond the Wall, a Night's Watch deserter, and Stannis does actually care about that, uh, sort of. He burns who... Well, the, another big difference between the show and the books... Mance is burned in the show, but in the books, he's still alive. And the person who was burned was Rattleshirt, who was swapped via some magic from uh, Melisandre, who also I would have really loved to have seen her contribution in the, the Battle on the Ice, where she uses her fire to, to take down uh, uh, Varamir. Yeah, to, to burn his eagle, yeah. to burn his eagle, which is that 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 would certainly look really cool i mean it's interesting because the the night's watch and the starks do have a long history and part of the reason why the the starks have to support the night's watch is just practical reasons if the wildlings break through the night's watch they're going to be raiding into the north so i mean you have i mean arto stark uh rode to the rescue of the night's watch uh when uh, Jolly Jack Musgood wasn't able to muster a response in time uh, when they fought in the Battle of Long Lake. Uh, or no, sorry, not uh, not Arto Stark. It's Will- Willem Stark, and then Arto Stark took over because Willem Stark uh, Willem Stark died in battle, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I know Stephen Atwell and I have had a discussion about the kind of weird political intrigues of House Stark during that time, when all of these feuding and scheming little half-brothers. But again, that's another story for another time. Uh, I do believe we talked about it with uh, Aziz one time in a History of Westeros uh, episode. But again, I'm getting off topic. It's just interesting that the this, this long relationship is forged as much by ideological reasons as it is by practical reasons. And certainly, Martin is no stranger to marrying the ideal the ideal and the practical together in the in his novel in fact that's a lot of the drama that he uses is the the difference between practical and ideal idealistic and where do you hash that line out and what can you do about it and so on and so forth and a lot of the protagonist characters have to struggle with that just as people in the real life in real life have to struggle with ideals meeting reality and just spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't lived enough of life yet. It's rarely reality that backs down in that struggle. Yeah, and 
We see that kind of evolution throughout Dance with Dragons. John starts off the series, uh, starts off the book essentially uh, saying to Stannis, uh, we're not really going to, Stannis wants all these castles, and John says, no, in fact, why don't you give me some men for uh, my troops to uh, command, and we can, because John's big strategy, uh, there's, I think, 19 castles of the Night's Watch, or 18, there's close to 20, but... Um, before A Dance with Dragons, only three of them are manned. You have the Shadow Tower, you have uh, Castle Black, and then you have Eastwatch by the Sea. Um, John, throughout the series, despite basically having zero troops left, uh, he wants to man them all. And eventually, throughout A Dance with Dragons, not only does he start becoming Stannis's probably his best military advisor, but he also gives him the Night Fort by the end of it. Yeah. And then when he gets the, the wildlings into it and they are able to handle the the integration of them, he does that by actually appointing many of them to, I know, I think it's, uh, is it Pip that ends up uh, leading the, the wildling spear wives at one of the castle or something like that? It was one, uh, one of the members of the Night's Watch ends up manning manning one of the castles of the Night's Watch with the 200 spear wives or something like that, or 300 spear wives. Yeah, the castle is Longbarrow, um, and Iron Iron Emmett and Dolores said, "Yeah, uh, Iron Emmett and Dolores said, oh, that's good because that the that, that's the one thing the Spearwives need is more sarcasm.' I, I mean, that, yeah, I, hey. I mean that sincerely. Actually, if you're gonna if you're gonna be stuck in the uh, you know in a cold castle at the roof of the world with an invading army of ice fairies and zombies, you might as well have a couple of jokes out of the deal." Yeah, and they actually, I mean, it, it's its also fascinating in A Dance with Dragons how between Stannis' men, and Stannis' men have so many different factions between them. I mean, one of my favorite, really, uh, a testament to Stannis' uh, sense of feminism is the fact that uh, I can't imagine any of the other kings being okay with a section of their uh, troops being regarded as uh, queen's men. You have Axel Florent going around telling people he's Hand of the Queen, uh, I think if Joffrey had had heard somebody saying that about Marjorie, he would have killed them. Or I mean, Tommen may not have cared. But uh, I don't, I, that's not even something I think Rob Stark would be uh, too terribly fond of. And yet, Stannis doesn't seem to. Uh, if he cares, we don't really know. And that's also taking into consideration the fact that Stannis and Selyse are not uh, the happiest couple of all. Um, they're not. They don't have the greatest marriage, and yet they have a very practical marriage. And Solis's her advice is uh, not not ignored. It's um, and th- there's there's a problem of uh, sexual harassment and rape that Stannis has to has to deal with. Uh, he gelds a few of his troops who were um, harassing the the wildlings. They end up working for Melisandre later, and uh, it, it's it's this really this really complex uh, situation there that I really found fascinating. Well, and it's certainly interesting, too, because, I mean, certainly Stannis, Stannis has no modern conceptions of that. Just his conversation with Asha, you know, spells that out in black and white. If, oh, yeah. If, if the gods didn't make you a man, why should I? Uh, but, you know, I think it's uh, it's interesting because Stannis has an almost uh, depersonalized way of looking at things. Like when you see him talking about the, you know, he's looking over the painted table and he says... You know, these 
you know, it's one land to rule alone. And it's basically he's talking about natural features and people are kind of an afterthought in his mind. So in, in that way, he's depersonalizing in a very fair way. It's almost boiled down to the base essentials of what can you do? And where can I use that? And it's not a matter of he, he doesn't disseminate. He doesn't flatter. He doesn't make nice. You know, we will make new lords. You know, if the lords we have are insufficient, then we'll build new ones. And he's just it's a, so practical that it's almost you can see why so many people don't like him it's because it's off putting. But for those who do like him, I mean, these guys are willing to just go to hell and back for Stannis. I mean, you wouldn't have a person who you don't like just a, a superficial commander you wouldn't you wouldn't cross a burning bridge of ships for a commander you just you were only kind of meh about so stannis the problem is that stannis doesn't get a lot of followers but the ones he does get are very loyal whether that be through the apocalyptic rhetoric of being azor high reborn or whether it's just through, yeah. through his own character traits just the the strength and the flaws of his character that people can relate to and respect and certainly davos is one of the people who can respect the person that stannis is and believe that that's a man that is willing to follow hence why stannis can be davos's god yeah and and that's kind of the especially the battle of blackwater that was maybe the one moment where the show just took uh took a book adaptation and uh decided to give stannis his uh his due when he uh, when he's leading the charge himself at the end, you know, come with me and take the city. His men are obviously still with him, even though they're really getting routed all because um, it was decided not to send scouts. I mean, just from a military perspective, do you think the the uh, lack of sending a scout ship ahead was really what did the men or what they have with the wildfire and the chain have uh, have done them in any way? Well, I'm trying to remember the the differences between because I, I studied the the book version of the Battle of the Blackwater, but I don't really remember. There's no chain. There's no chain in the in the show, and and the the walking across the burning ships. Yeah, that I don't know if that's as big a deal in the show either. Well, so I mean, for for the books, I know that uh, Florent Emery Florent, I think's the guy's name. Uh, yes. He he was the one that did that, and he he was just flush with victory disease. You read it in, um, for those who don't understand, victory disease is when you're so convinced of your own success that you make very easily avoidable errors. And, and sometimes it's called uh, the English disease, hubris, depending on, I mean, that was a lot of times uh, English writers would talk about uh, uh, hubris and uh, for uh, the English army being beaten by other foes. Um, but, uh, so you can see that, that he made just those very, very bad mistakes. And the problem was, is that the political system being what it was, Emery Florent was pretty much expecting to have the admiralty position. Uh, I know in the show, Davos was made the admiral and that would have never happened in the books because none of the no ennobled individuals would have followed him because it's just, no, he's this upjumped peasant you know, he does not, he's not blessed to order lords into battle. He does not have the, the aristocratic blue blood that, uh, that we have that makes us inherently superior human beings. I know it sounds completely worthless and it is, but that's the way they thought back then. Do you think the, um, the victory disease, uh, 
dynamic was kind of at play when um when Stannis after the battle of Cla- Castle Black Stannis sort of thinks that his smartest next move would be well after getting some uh shady advice from the dubious Arnolf Karstark he sets his sights on the Dreadfort which John in his first act of really saying uh we're gonna we're gonna start helping Stannis a bit says yeah that's really not a good idea to go after that castle you're never gonna take it do you think that would have um would have been the the Stannis being a little gung-ho after his great win at 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 the wall I don't think so I actually think that's the drawback of his kind of people secondary features first sort of mentality he doesn't understand that he needs to win these people over I mean he understands he needs to do that he needs followers as to be the king he understands that but he doesn't think of the way of how am I going to get these people to, to come out of nowhere and follow me and that's when John gives him the advice now part of that is a storytelling conception we want to be able to see John give good advice to Stannis to show his administrative and political chops so when he makes mistakes in the fifth book, that kind of uh, you can kind of see where the development is. You can see where he, you know, made a good move and you can see where he made a bad move. Uh, so I really think it's just this. He's still not at the part where he is thinking of the people in their own in their own mindsets. He's still stuck in his egocentric mentality of, you know, if I do this, then the people will show up and when the people and. So it's it's not so much I think victory disease so much as just it's one of Stannis's character flaws coming to the forefront. Well, also I mean it, it's kind of maybe from a a reader's perspective when when Stannis gets to the wall and he's basically sending out his uh, "I'm here, bow to me" letters to everybody in the north and they all respond with basically "Oh, that's nice. I don't really care." Uh, Having seen what Stannis did at the wall, you could say, well, that's kind of a dick move. Look, he just saved all of you guys. But then if you're if you're in the spread out sparse north and it's getting colder and everybody's tired from all the war, uh, they don't really know the the grand big thing that he did. And nor do they care, even though uh, obviously if the wall had fallen, uh, a lot of those people would have bigger problems on their hands than uh House Bolton, which even though it controls the North, isn't it's a very Bruce. Bruce knows that his uh, hold on the North isn't very good. And he's heavily reliant on Frey soldiers who he also knows are just about not even just about pretty much the least popular troops he could have brought. I think actually he would have been better off in the North with Lannister troops than Frey troops after the Red Wedding. Oh, Absolutely. But I think it's, you know, it's also they also got their own practical concerns to think about. There are krakens in the wolfwood is the is the the quote from the book. So, you know, they're like, it's like, hey, I saved the Night's Watch. It's like, that's cool. I still have lots of problems I have to deal with here. And since so many of my troops have already died in the War of the Five Kings, I'm I'm working with a deficit in manpower. So, you know, that's great for you, but I've got my own problems. And that's why John says, well, you know, you can go and treat with these northern uh, these clans, these clansmen, you know, they're not, uh, they're not in the same, you know, they, they didn't muster because they're really hard to get a hold of and Rob needed to move immediately. And they've never actually guested a king in their mead hall. So you go to their mead hall and talk to them. And sure enough, Stannis goes to their mead halls and talks to them. And then you've got the walls just, you know, falling over themselves saying, all right, let's go and take out some Boltons. And then he goes and he gets this idea of now if I strike at the Ironborn, 
then I can, uh, I can actually say, you know, I'm the king that, uh, you know, I'm putting the, I'm putting the, the horse before the cart this time. I am the king that people want to follow because I'm acting the way a king should, as opposed to these other kings who are selfish and decadent. And I mean, you have like, for example, I mean, you saw in the Dance of the Dragons, you know, the two claimants were just the worst. You know, nobody wanted to fight for Rainra or Aegon II because they were just terrible people. And, you know, a lot of reasons why they did it was more for practical considerations. But then now if you have Stannis saying, look, I'm going to act the way a king should act, uh, then and then he goes and fights. He goes to Deepwood Mott and he takes out uh, Asha Grejo. Now, he could just say, you know, right of conquest, I'm going to use this as my headquarters from now on. But instead, he doesn't. He actually goes and returns Deepwood Mott to the Glovers. And that shows the Northmen, they're saying, well, okay, this is not just a, this is not just someone saying, hey, uh, I'm going to be the king. This is a man who concretely is acting like a king. And there is a practical effect that you can actually look at Deepwood Mott and see the mailed fist of Glover flying on the battlements again. This is something, you know, and then he gets a lot more support uh, with that, in, including some of the actual Northmen. And then that way, when he's marching on, um, when he's marching on Winterfell, and then Roos is dealing with the just so many different problems that he has to deal with because he's got, you know, the phrase, he's got the Manderleys, and he's got half of the Umbers, and the other half are with Stannis, and he's got to deal with all of these factions, and, you know, he has to do so. And then Stannis shows up with his incredibly loyal army, and then he he susses out the the Karstark plot, which helps him out helps him out there. And then you know it's going to be a real real showdown fight in the Battle of the Ice, and I'm really looking forward to it because we can see the developments that brought Stannis to that battle, and so it's the culmination of his character arc, and then the the basically the the bad harvest that Bruce Bolton gets, you know, the, the wages of treachery, so to speak, they, they're going to come back and they're going to haunt, uh, Bruce Bolton and Stannis is going to grab Winterfell probably really soon in the sixth book. Well, what I, what I also think is really important about Deepwood Mott is, is just the, I mean, the whole, the whole Ironborn invasion into the North was, uh, stupid for a lot of reasons. I, I don't, Sacking Winterfell obviously wrecked uh, Rob Stark. I don't really know how much it did for the Ironborn cause, given that uh, they're not really enemies, except it, oh, only in the sense that Ned had uh, had taken Theon away. But for for that, that's kind of a a short sighted goal. But they're still in the North, and when Stannis comes to take that to take Deepwood Mott. He kind of just wipes them off the map. And if you're a northern, if you're northerners trying to figure out who to support, whether or not you think Stannis can actually defeat Winterfell is is obviously still, even to this day, an open question. But he gets rid of the Ironborn, and that's something. That's certainly uh, proof that not only is he there, he's going to do some good, and he's going to get a lot of these uh, houses who really want uh, Roost to go away, but maybe not at the cost of their uh, whatever troops they have left after Rob Rob's campaigns. Which also, I mean, just, I, I really liked, um, especially Lady Barbary Dustin's 
view on the uh, Rob's whole war because it takes place almost entirely in uh, the Riverlands uh, from Rob's perspective, a little bit in the Westerlands, uh, a little bit in the North, obviously. But um, this is not, they, they all, the North bled for a war they have nothing to show for. Now they have a hostile, uh, now they have a hostile ruler who every house lost people at the Red Wedding. The Red Wedding was, um, and it's such a bigger massacre in the books than the show could obviously, or would obviously portray. I don't think uh, seeing thousands of people die was something that a TV show would uh, want to spend uh, half an hour showing. And also with um, House Umber, you've got uh, the the Great John is still a hostage. He doesn't really factor into the show at all after the first season. I don't think he's even in the show after the first season. But um, he's uh, House Umber's. Uh, a lot of these people have hostages, and their uh, loyalties are dubious. And they're either looking for no war, or they're looking for somebody to support. Yeah. Well, so I mean, I, I say that the. The North definitely had reason to fight in the very beginning, you know, in the in the outset of Rob's campaign, because I mean, at this point, Starks Starks go south to the Iron Throne and get killed, and you know, it's you know, you get Rickard Stark, and then you get Brandon Stark, and you get Edard Stark. You know, there's an old an old saying: uh, once is uh, once is a tragedy, twice is a coincidence, and three times is enemy action. Uh, and so, at this point, you know, you're, they're thinking it's like, hey. The Iron Throne is not really a friend to the North, and it hasn't been for a while. I mean, you have, you know, Robert Baratheon was certainly a friend of the North, but he got killed, and there's a lot of suspicion about that. And John Aaron was a friend of the North, but he got killed, and there's a lot of suspicion about that. You know, he didn't actually get killed by the Lannisters, but that's what people are thinking. So, you know, at some point, they're like, hey, you know— Really, we're getting the raw end of this feudal overlordship deal, and so I can't really blame them for for rebelling, given that that's what they were what they were getting. But I mean, certainly Barbary Dustin is—I mean, she's one hundred percent looking for looking out for Barbary Dustin at this point. She, she'll oh, yeah. she'll jump ship if Roose's ship looks like it's going to sink, and it, it probably will be. Uh, I mean, especially since I mean, you have you have the Manderleys messing with. Uh, with the Boltons and the Freys, and you know they're even. It's it's funny because uh, they uh, the Manderleys go say, "Oh, look, White Harbor will ride out with you." Uh, White Harbor does not fear to to to, to ride, and then the Freys are like, "Yeah, what happened to the three Freys that that hung out where uh, went that went, went and visited you?" And it's like, <laughs> "Well, they're all in your stomachs now." And and yes, Frey pies. And they, they, Manderly, Manderly gets a second helping because he's just got to add the extra cherry on the top of reveling in this hilarious moment of cannibalism. Uh, yeah, there's, you know, there's war, there's war crimes, and then there's a guy who delete, uh, delights in uh, killing his enemies, uh, cooking them into meat pies, and then presenting them at a, at a, at a wedding to uh, fake Arya Stark. And if you're more of a show watcher, obviously. Um, Sansa in the show was married to Ramsay. In the books, it's a fake Arya Stark, who's really Jane Poole, who traveled south to the uh, with the uh, with the northern um, host to uh, go to Winterfell, and she was Sansa's best friend. And uh, Littlefinger had kept her stored away in one of his brothels, 
which uh, yeah, yeah. Really, uh, Jane in a in a novel series with awful things and sad stories. Jane Poole is like the Fry's dog of the novel series. It's just someone says it and you immediately get sad. If you know what you're talking about, yeah. you just immediately get sad whenever you hear the name Jane Poole. Well, she gets a raw deal. It's it's interesting in A Dance with Dragons how much shade Ra- Wyman Manderley's throwing at Winterfell. And I imagine, I mean, Roose Bolton is such a shady guy the way they describe him. He's got, he's he's creepy, he's got... He he really needs some lubriderm. He really needs some moisturize. He's he's not not a very attractive man. Um, he's a very pragmatic leader, but uh, he's also a very uh, bad man. And he knows that they're not really that afraid of him. They're afraid of him in the sense that everybody kind of knows what the situation mm-hmm. is. But um, I mean, with regard to how the North feels about the the crown. I, I guess there's always the sense that, um, I mean, Rob Rob's campaign was sort of doomed more from the perspective of he chose to annex the Riverlands versus if he had just the North had seceded, they would have had a hell of a time either invading, uh, they'd either have to go through Moat Kalen, which is basically impenetrable, or uh, White Harbor, which uh, w- would have probably been pretty difficult to get through to there, an invasion. I don't think we really hear about that ever happening. I, I, I'm... I'm... I mean, I disagree. I think that if uh, if he was able to take uh, Tywin West and thus not be able to, to cement the Lannister Tyrell alliance, then while the Westerlands had all of their strength in the West, the capital could have fallen. Then what Mace Tyrell did would have been anybody's guess, given that he probably feared being supplanted by the Florence. He probably would have declared independence uh, on his own, which... I mean, that, that could have been a whole thing. I mean, the Seven Kingdoms could have broken apart. But uh, I also find it funny that Roose Bolton is also creepy. He doesn't speak above a whisper. And, I mean, he, he makes people. When he's in Harrenhal, he's just straight up naked with leeches getting leeched. And he's just making people show up there. And it's sort of like, a, I don't know if you know about uh, this amusing piece of presidential lore. Uh, LBJ... For staffers he didn't like, he would make them uh, deliver whatever messages or things they wanted to talk to about while he was taking a dump, and just 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 as a power move. <laughs> uh, I mean, he he also liked to to drop trow and the, the White House. The White Houses was a circus back then. I guess that's the equivalent of having to give uh, uh, Trump a message while he's in his bathrobe talking to Hannity. That, and that very much, very much could be. Uh, I mean, oh no, so LBJ actually used to chat uh, to uh, swim naked in the White House pool and invite foreign dignitaries to do so because he said it was to establish genital dominance. Like that's the kind of guy that LBJ was. So just, to, just letting you guys know, just that that actually happened. Yeah, if only if only Roost had had a pool to go swimming uh, in. I think. Trust me, I really think that it's a power move to just be naked and covered with leeches. That's like if you had to deal with that and know that that's that's your superior, that's who who authorizes everything. I think I think the effect, it, the form is different, but the spirit is definitely the same. 
Do you do you buy into the theory that Roos is a skin changer? I, no, I don't really. I'm not big. I'm not big into the into the uh, outlandish theories. I'm, I'm more. I'm more yeah. into the the smaller theories. Like I, I do believe that uh, Aegon the Sixth is actually a secret Blackfire. I, I like that theory. Uh, I used to be a big fan of the theory. Yeah, I agree. That uh, that Aegon was actually descended through the female line of Cala Blackfire and Bittersteel. And that explicitly, it was, you know, Bittersteel was always the champion of uh, Damon, Damon Blackfire's sons. And that the cause after Bittersteel's death is installing the one claimant that Bittersteel would not support because he would not want to support an heir of himself over an heir of Damon Blackfire. But of course, because one final just stamping on the grave of Bittersteel, but uh, George sunk that theory by saying he did not believe that uh, Bittersteel had any children, so... Right, Aziz, Aziz got uh, asked that question, right? I think so, yeah. I mean, but, I mean, to be fair, I was really mad with that, because that that, that was the one where they said that uh, Blackfire, or Britain Bloodraven took Dark Sister with him to Deep, or to the Night's Watch, and like, how did anyone right. allow that? He had been arrested for treason like if if there was any hey you have to surrender the family sword thing it's treason so how he was able to keep that uh especially since they've had so many problems with the with the blackfire sword being in the hands of the blackfire descendants why they wouldn't have just kept the one sword they had is a i mean it it doesn't make any sense to me yeah, I, uh, I'm i with you there. And uh, speaking of Beyond the Wall, I had one question. It's not really related to, to Stannis' uh, adventures, but um, a, a, lot of, a lot of the... Well, I guess kind of, because a lot of the, the dynamic of the wall in A Dance with Dragons is influenced by the fact that the Night's Watch is totally spent, and one of the big reasons they're totally spent is because... Uh, Jorah Mormont's father, and anyone who listens to this podcast knows that it's tradition to shit on Jorah. He sucks. He's the worst. Um, do you like Jorah, by the way? Do I like Jorah? No. Um, exactly. That's, I'm not sure you would have been allowed on the show. <laughs> I am okay with Ian Glean and Ian Glean's voice. I am not okay with Jorah Mormont. Excellent. Excellent. So we can we can continue. We don't have to end the podcast right now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but so Jorah, Jorah Mormon's father, Jorah, Jorah Mormon, it's a hard name to pronounce, J-O-E-R, Jor. the old bear, Jor, Jorah Mormon takes his, um, his troops, a lot of them, 200 men, north for the Great Ranging, which I think is the stupidest military decision made, probably in the whole series, and that's actually the reason why I wanted to, um, bring up the, uh, my, one of my uh, areas of military history that I'm a big fan of is the Anglo-Zulu Wars and the two ones that everybody tends to know because they got film adaptations, the Battles of Asandawana and Battles of Works Drift. You get two really separate dichotomy, uh, two separate situations where in Asandawana, the uh, well-powered, a uh, lot, uh, lot of forces of the British get totally romped in... Uh, by the Zulus because they have the poor formation, poor ammo distribution, but a big, big, strong force gets totally wiped out. Whereas Works Drift, there's a little over a hundred guys plus some 
sick people shooting out of windows and a hundred of them fend off with, uh, with a perimeter basically of measly bags, of uh, and, uh, uh, wagons get, uh, they, they defend against 4,000, uh, Zulus. And I, I, I tend to see a lot of the way that the Night's Watch conducted itself, um, I like to compare the Great Ranging to the Battle of Asandawana because, I mean, obviously the um, the uh, the others aren't any, anybody uh, to screw around with. But you 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 send your forces just ill prepared out in the out in the uh, out in the wilderness, and then they get totally they get totally destroyed. And who is that? A, really a surprise to anyone? So I think the problem with the Great Ranging is that. Uh, Gior is letting his information gaps uh, and his desire to do something to to make the ranging meaningful and impactful uh, determine his decisions. I mean, the, the great ranging first was supposed to be an information gathering campaign. And then he just keeps taking on more and more and more. It's mission creep. He's trying to do too much with the amount of forces he has where what he should have done was stayed to his information gathering mission when he realized that he couldn't find um when he couldn't find first ranger benjamin stark said okay well we're not going to be able to find him we know that there's a lot of problems coming we need to go back to our defensive multiplier because there's nothing around here that's going to be able to have us fight an army of a hundred thousand even if the army was 10 times smaller 10,000 wildlings versus the measly forces that the Night's Watch had is just not a good idea. You have to, you, you have to fight with the, with the army you have, and what he should have done was retreat back, although I disagree that that's the worst military decision because it's Balon's invasion of the North, because it, yeah, it okay, is yeah. insane. I mean, he, he can't even administer the, si- the territory that he's hoping to seize and he can't even force a treaty with the king in the north because he doesn't even know where the king of the north is. I mean, he, he can't sign a, a, a peace treaty or anything. He can't force him to recognize his dominance. I mean, Balon didn't even have a plan to take Winterfell. That was all Theon's idea. And Theon only was able to do it because of author Fiat and because he actually had local knowledge of the area, which Balon did, did, didn't even account for when he was doing that because he hated... Theon so much, he's like, here, go do a, a worthless, meaningless thing uh, task because you're my son and you have to do something because otherwise it reflects poorly on me. But it's like, you know, I mean, it, he, he, he has his best force go to Moat Kalen and then park itself there. So, I mean, it, it was it's just a bad idea. I mean, you can understand why Gior did, even though you said that he should have done things better. And even when he does the wrong things, he at least tries to do them in a way that's decent. I mean, he looks for a fortification as opposed to fighting out in the open. I mean, just finding the finding and securing the fists of the first men puts him above Balon Greyjoy, as far as I'm concerned. I, I just, I, I'm really well. I'm not a huge fan of. of I, I don't think the Night's Watch is particularly noble to begin with. I think it's yeah, it is what it is. It's a prison. It's a penal colony. But. Um, I, I tend to see the value of the Rangers not as uh, uh, mission gatherers or intel gatherers, although obviously some of them do uh, fulfill that role. But um, from my perspective, uh, the role of the Rangers is essentially to give these people uh, 
like their their exercise time in the prison to prevent them from revolting because i mean what else would they be doing with their time they got there because they're bored as hell but well, um, i would say that i mean they, they still perform you know reconnaissance and screening and that kind of thing the rangers still still sure. still have yeah. a, a a worthwhile military mission it's just i mean the night's watch is so hamstrung by just a lack of people i mean they can't even defend the gift and the new gift so I, don't, I just I didn't think it was a smart idea to try and gather intel via a slow moving caravan. No, that's entirely possible. I understand that maybe because the idea of the the lack of knowledge that he wants to have a stronger uh, patrol be sent out. Because I mean, you lost Waymar Royce and you lost uh, Benjamin Stark, so you lost these guys that are that are an individual fire team. So you want to send out something bigger. I understand that, but. Um, I mean, that, that was why they sent the, I mean, that's why they even got the Ravens, so that they could send the messages so that they could give themselves much more information. Yep. It's just, it, it just wasn't handled the right way. Um, but yeah. Do you, speaking of Theon at Winterfell, do you see him factoring in at all to the, um, I don't even know if the Dreadfort will be uh, taken. We don't really know exactly what the Winds of Winter will uh, have. I don't, I don't think there's enough book space, honestly. There's just yeah. so much stuff that needs I, to get done. I think what'll happen is um, if there is something that happens in the Dreadfort, it'll be done in Davos's chapter after the fact when the men from uh, Skagos march. And they'll just say that, you know, they, they sent uh-huh. a force to go over there. Uh, and, and, you know, at the time, a, uh, a runner, you know, a, a messenger arrived, a messenger Raven arrived that said, hey, Bruce Bolton is dead. Stannis is in control. Surrender your garrison or we will go over there and kill you. And then so they probably just surrender and say, look, don't kill us. I mean, we were just, you know, we were just doing our thing. So I don't really expect the Dreadfort to be that big of an ideal just because the uh, the conflict with the others, as long as, as well as the other myriad non-North plots that are going on. Yep. Uh, just I don't think there's enough word space in order to to have an actual showdown at uh, at the Dreadfort. Although it might be interesting to see if uh, Skagosi Unicorn Armies uh, capture someone who runs from the Battle of Winterfell, whether it's uh, Ramsey or someone else. I mean, that that might be cool to kind of get a an introduction of the unicorns that we're hearing about and we never see in Skagos. That might, I mean, that might be a cool scene. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you mentioned book space because the big question that a lot of Stannis fans have been wondering for the past couple of years is, will Stannis burn Shireen? And it, it's set up in the, the from a, a narrative sense in the books, but the question of book, of, of book space, physical, like, like time for either Stannis to go from Winterfell, assuming he survives the battle, which we're obviously going to talk about because it's a big, uh, subject of this podcast but the 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 time it would take from stannis to either go from winterfell back to the wall or for shireen and Solis to come back down to him uh especially just just the 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 sheer uh struggle of of traveling in that blizzard which the latter part of a dance of dragons really focuses on in the north and asha's chapters how, how difficult that is in the winds of winter sample chapters i've had this discussion with uh Emmett of uh, not a cast a few times for Quentin, but and he's he's really moved my I, I 
I, I concede that he, he'll probably burn Shireen, but the, the book space of how that's going to happen is, is something that I, I, I am still very unsure. So about. I think what's going to happen is we're going to have the wall fall. And then we're just going to see, you know, people trickling into Winterfell, the ruins of what had happened when the wall fell. And of those people, Salise and Shireen and Melisandre will be uh, in one of those groups that that make it there. They might even use Melisandre's magic to help keep them there. They might be one of the largest or only group that makes it because of Melisandre's magic. Um, but I do think, I mean, just that all of the narrative setup has been such and so well layered yep. to it. I mean, it's going to be a rehash of uh, Stannis's holding of Storm's End in the Ro- in Robert's Rebellion. Only this time, it's against the literal apocalypse, as opposed to the more localized apocalypse of being killed by Ares Targaryen. Uh, so the cosmic set scales are set, and the, the ultimate tragedy is is that nothing's going to come of it. Uh, I know some of my friends, uh, Stephen Atwell being one of them, believe that Stannis is going to be the thousandth commander of the Night's Watch. Uh, I think he's going to go down swinging uh, when he realizes that uh, his deliverance does not come and that he is not the prophesized hero and that all of the things that he has done has been for naught. Which, again, I find is tragic because it's like Stannis Baratheon never gets a break, even by the actual metaphysical gods of the setting that is George R. R. Martin. Uh, but I mean, it's, you know, I'm, he's, he's every, Stannis is every competent, uh, every competent side character in fantasy that's actually given, given the chance to stand, but the, the, the narrative weight of the, you know, the side character doesn't accomplish the the plot the protagonist does because that's what the protagonist is meant to do. So he's given the the power of a king but he's still a competent side character as opposed to an actual factual protagonist like Jon Snow and Daenerys are. So that, that's ultimately, I find, a, a metaphysical tragedy. And it even it's a little bit of a criticism of fantasy itself, which, I mean, the novel series is a, has always been a big criticism. or Well, it's not always been a big criticism, but it's always had that element of criticism of the fantasy genre. And I think this is one of the things where you see the tragedy of a side character and people just forget about the side characters when they're off page, but the side characters are important. I mean, all men are heroes in their own eyes and all men have a story to tell and so on and so forth. And a lot of the fifth book that you see with Quentin Martell and all that is, you know, these people are side characters, but they're still human and they still have stories to tell. And, you know, when the narrative kills them like this, it is tragic. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And um, I, I think the way I think the reason that a lot of uh, show watchers don't really like Stannis or even D&D have admitted that they didn't really understand the character is in the show in season two. He was really in a lot of ways. He fulfills the role of like a, a, a big bad to borrow from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He's, he's essentially kind of the villain. He's not really a villain, but he's, he's really an antagonist of Renly. And even, I mean, nobody watching Stannis versus Cersei, I think, really thinking that Stannis is going to be the one to to offer. But they then they do that. And George R. R. Martin, one of his great uh, skills is he can take characters, even like Theon and, and the sideline them for two whole books and then bring them back. The show really struggled. Well, A Storm of Swords, Stannis's arc, uh, 
throughout A Storm of Swords is really spread out through seasons three and four. So you got the guy sitting, really doing little other than contemplating uh, burning Gendry, who is a far more likable character than... Uh, not that Edric Storm is unlikable, but he's, he's not somebody presented to the audience as like, oh, yeah, 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 you should be really uh, super sympathetic uh, of, of this guy as opposed to, you know, Joe Dempsey from Skins. I think a lot of people really uh, responded to that character as a result of his acting. So I think I think the way you described how Stannis functions as a supporting character is a, a, a really good reading of the character. And obviously all of the, the uh, situations you described Post uh, A Dance with Dragons relies on uh, Stannis winning the Battle of Ice. And uh, I think that set it up perfectly for us to talk about how the Battle of Winterfell between uh, Roos and Stannis, whereas in the show it's uh, a Battle of the Bastards, it's John versus Ramsay. But here in the books, we get Stannis versus Roos, and uh, really interested to hear your thoughts on how that's gonna how that's gonna. So play out. we can actually see that uh, this is going to be a really fun battle because we actually see a lot of preparation that goes into the battle, and we know that Stannis is actually an accomplished field engineer in the terms of he knows how field works work and he knows how to prepare a battlefield. We know that he knows how to take advantage of battlefields because he does it multiple times, both in the backstory with the battle at Fair Isle. And at the the Battle of uh, Storm's End, which ultimately ends up with a shadow baby, and you don't have to really worry about that, but he was still preparing for it anyway. I think it was actually my first Con of Thrones. I want to say it was my first Con of Thrones. I actually discussed this battle, or the, the Battle of Storm's End, uh, if there was no shadow baby, and I had actually built a map with drink glasses and napkins and stuff. It was a real, real fun time. Uh, but so... We can see that uh, he's taking advantage of the ice. They're talking about how that they've been making so many fishing holes that the ice is getting very brittle. So Stannis is going to use his Northman cavalry. The Northern cavalry have these kind of shaggy garons, they're called uh, in the books, and they're equipped with what are essentially horse-sized snowshoes. And now snowshoes are made so that you can put your weight over a larger amount of surface so you don't actually sink into the snow. If you actually just try to walk through heavy snow, it's called post-holing because it actually looks like you're grabbing a mailbox and putting it down and it burns up so much energy, it's terrible. So he was going to use the uh, snowshoe-equipped light northern cavalry to pull the fray heavy cavalry onto the ice to sink them. Uh, Then, you know, the Mandalays will march in from behind and push them into the into the uh, water when they realize that they actually have a chance to turn coat. Once they turn coat, because Wyman and Davos had their own special uh, arrangement, as we saw in, in the fifth novel, uh, that'll be what uh, the actual shape of the battle will be like. I know there's the Night's Lamp theory by Cantius, and I'm not going to go and insult him by uh, just basically five point, uh, five bullet point summarizing his theory. If you want to read that, please check out the can't use night lamp theory. I think more conventionally, just in terms of a feigned retreat by the Northern light cavalry to lure them across the ice using the, uh, the torches in Stannis's camp as the guideposts to lure them into across the, the ice. Once that happens, then Stannis is going to turn over Lightbringer and make Ramsey or make Roos and Ramsey think that Stannis is dead, 
that's the the source of the pink letter. When the pink letter showed up, Ramsey, at least in my eyes, Ramsey actually believed he was telling the truth that Stannis is dead and that uh, the sword was turned over as proof. Whereas he's actually plotting to march around Winterfell and sneak in via the uh, the two sides of House Umber linking up and being able to open the gate and take over the fortress of Winterfell. That That's my theory as to how it's going to go. And it's interesting because this idea is actually straight out of essentially a literary conception of a famous battle. Uh, this is something that George R. R. Martin does. He uses a lot of literary conceptions of battles rather than actual play-by-plays of battles themselves. Uh, for example, in Deepwood Mott, Stannis' troops cut boughs from the Weirwood so that they are from the Wolfswood so that they can march up. And uh, it's basically optical camouflage to break up their silhouettes. That's right out of Macbeth. Uh, Macbeth is told by the three witches, you will not fall until Birnam Wood marches to high, uh, the high hall of Dunsinane. And then sure enough, Macduff's men uh, pull, uh, are cut, cut down boughs of Birnam Wood and they march to Dunsinane or just like, uh, and in this one, it's actually the Battle of the Ice. It was a famous battle between the Kievan Rus and the Teutonic Knights, where the in Alexander Nevsky, the the actual uh, it's a film, uh, they they basically show this heroic. Hey, we've tricked the uh, the heavily armed and armored Teutonic Knights who are technologically superior, and they were beaten by us scrappy uh, Rus. When in all honesty, it probably didn't happen like that but the the conception of it is strong and that's what George uses in his writing because it's already been built into an enduring uh essentially cultural moment the these conceptions of battles and so he's just taking that work and he's using it to enhance his own his own novels i mean again you, you can see this all all the time one of the one of the things about Alexander the Great that they always use, it's now a trope, is that Alexander the Great was able to use aggressive and effective movement to essentially move so quickly using unconventional movement techniques that he was able to surprise these old, stodgy, traditional generals. He was able to beat them with his youth and creativity. And if you want to say, well, who is that? I mean, that's Rob Stark in Dayron the First, the Young Dragon. That was exactly the same thing they did in their things. They showed that they're young, creative, energetic military prodigies that are just beating these old and established uh, people pillar to post. And is that that's what George, I think, does to enhance his own writing so he doesn't have to get bogged down into the research and the play-by-play of individual battles, which is not always his strongest suit. No, I agree. Um, the interesting... Uh, the thing that I keep wondering about the Battle of Ice is... Um, Obviously, in traditional warfare, having a castle is generally a really great asset, like the Dreadfort. They don't attack because it's something that can be held really with only a few dozen men against a couple thousand. But as it pertains to this battle, the Battle on the Ice, you've got a Winterfell, which is it, it's easy to forget, like just the way that the show has, has shown Winterfell over the past couple of years and just how long it's been. Winterfell is is a really a ruin in A Dance with Dragons after uh, it was sacked. And uh, A Dance with Dragons, they really 
make a uh, they make a big deal out of you know which which houses are still inhabitable, the Great Hall, all of that. They're they're dealing with it was probably a bad idea to sack the castle uh, in in the long long run, but I, I've just I, I can't really decide, especially the fact that Bruce Bolton nominally has more troops than Stannis putting aside the fact that a lot of them aren't particularly loyal. He does have a lot of Bolton and Frey troops, but just whether the castle is a liability or an asset, especially because uh, Bruce is, at least from what we know right now, is he's sending troops out, and those troops, uh, especially House Manderley, are not particularly, House Umber, not particularly loyal to him, but um, it seems like the castle could almost be his undoing in a lot uh, of ways. I disagree, if only because of the weather and the fact that they're going to, you know, you have a central stockpile, a granary, and it just as a defensive multiplier, it's going to be useful, and especially it's going to be useful in the other uh, when the others come calling. That's actually a panel I'm doing with Aziz from History of Westeros in uh, just a couple of weeks. Or if this is if you're not listening to this when it first comes out, it's going to be the uh, second week of July, uh, 2019. We're going to be talking about the the use or the tactics and equipment you would use, and a lot of them require fighting from fortifications, just because of of the manpower uh, and the fact that whites feel no pain. So the uh, so I, I'd say the the castle is is worthwhile just just in terms of the granary, of not, if nothing else. Uh, right, because some of Roos's strategy, and Roos even going back to the Battle of the Whispering Woods, his strategy is really to. Uh, send out his least favorite troops first and keep his own people close to him. And that seems to be the case now. What will be interesting is, and you've also got uh, Mance Raider and his spirit. Well, are they still at Winterfell or have uh, they so left? It, They're still at Winterfell. It's right? unknown because the, the, la- the last advice or the last information we have from them is from the pink letter. And, you know, how exactly how true is everything in the pink letter? So. Well, yeah, because um, I'm not Ra- Ramsey wouldn't know that Mance was even there. Uh, they, they they had something had to have happened. And we're, we, we, you're right; we're not yeah. clear exactly. Um, but even even putting that aside, you've got uh, regardless of the fact that House Manderley has been sent, he he doesn't trust House Dustin. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how much House Risewell is uh, loyal to. Well. None of the Northern Houses are that loyal to Roos, but uh, I know he's worried about houses, Dustin and Sirwin, more than he's worried about some of the well, other ones. I know that for Dustin, he's like, well, as long as Barbary Justin hates Eddard Stark more than she hates me, then he, he can count on her support. And Risewells are basically uh, in, bl- in, uh, in with the, uh, the Dustins because before she was Barbary Dustin, she was Barbary Risewell. Yep. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting too because uh, one of the big problems is that Roos is facing this really tense domestic situation that he has to do something to alleviate because I mean he's got I mean Wyman Manerly takes a knife to the neck these these people are at each other's throats in a literal sense uh, so he has to do something and that's why he sends out his his punitive force especially since uh, you know. One of their best commanders uh, was killed by, uh, I believe it was a ditch trap that was dug by one of the uh, the Northmen. Uh, and then Sir Stupid Hostin Frey ends up being in charge, which is, again, he's setting up. This is, you know, you can see the action. George is setting up the 
the chance for the, the fray forces to fall. And that uh, if if Roos doesn't do something with these fray troops, it's going to cause more and more conflict. Even his most, or at least he believes one of his most loyal assets, Barbary Dustin, says even the Dustins and Risewell's lost men at the North uh, at the Red Wedding. The North remembers Frey, so he he has to deal with this tense political situation. And as I said before, that's you know that's the that's the harvest that you get from treachery. So the he's really put himself into a bad situation where he has to respond. And it in uh, in chess, it's called a zhuxuang. It's when you have to make a choice because you can't pass your turn in chess. But every single choice you make makes your position worse. And and that's where Roose Bolton is in. And it's really interesting. And I, I like that, especially when George does that to his characters. I know he's he's very fond of the lose-lose choice for his protagonists because he believes that it gives you a true measure of what your uh what your character or what your what the character is worth and who they're going to be in the dark. And that's, you know, the human heart at war with itself. That's one of his repeatedly repeatedly stated has been one of his most favorite things to write about yes his uh i believe his nobel prize for literature it might be his pulitzer but it's one of those two the speech that's on youtube if uh anybody's interested that's a great speech i uh faulkner's faulkner's one of my absolute faves but um it's interesting that just the the strategy involved in uh the battle of ice because um the Battle of the Bastards, and also the the if you even want to call it a battle, Stannis's final uh, bit in season five. Uh, that's out in the open. I, I assume that's probably uh, budgetary more than anything else. But how much of the battle do you think really will be kind of fought out in the open with, and not just kind of uh, between ditches and uh, trying to take a castle or all? Well, of I think that the actual. Stuff? Battle between the Frey forces and that, you know, that light northern cavalry that retreats and then the push. I think that'll take place in the open, but uh, I don't think the rest uh-huh. of it will. I think it'll be, it'll either be room to room combat, if it's, if it's that, or if it's, uh, it might even just be, uh, you know, attacking by surprise and just a complete massacre. I mean, that, that's certainly a hilarious, that would be a hilarious, uh, sort of karmic payback for Roos where he, he is the one who kills Rob Stark at, uh, in his home, uh, in while he's sitting down. And then meanwhile, he's sitting down at, uh, Winterfell trying to figure out whether or not he's going to, you know, what, what, what is the next move are going to be? And then all of his Northern troops turn traitor and just start attacking him. I mean, I guess that's karmic payback. I mean, there's the, the theory of the red wedding 2.0 with, Walder Frey, it's going to be the, the wedding with, uh, oh, what's his name? Davin Lannister uh, and, and the Frey oh, girl. Yeah. And that's going to turn into a, uh, that's going to turn into another red wedding uh, enabled via Lady Stoneheart and possibly a lot of the, uh, the Brotherhood. So that, that, I mean, that's certainly interesting, but it, it's also, it would be very funny to see uh, the surprise attack. I mean, but it could just easily just be a surprise attack in the in the vein of sending uh, people to climb the walls or to open the gates and then to have an attack that way. I mean, that's happened in so many different uh, battles throughout history that I could I could go on and on for days about battles that have been decided by or sieges that have been decided by someone being able to get people in so that they can open the gate and march the troops in. Yeah, I 
the one thing I also try to think about with regard to this battle is um, a lot of people, and especially just since we haven't had a... I, Dance with Dragons came out slightly after uh, season one, but since then we haven't had a single book since the series. And probably no character more than Ramsey got... Kind of, there's no greater parody between the relevance of their book character and then their show character. And Ramsey... Uh, if you if you're listening to some of our uh if you've listened to some of our episode recaps, I, I, I criticized the uh heel turn of Danny as just being so brief in comparison to the multi season arc that Ramsey got. And I'm wondering kind of how if George R. R. Martin I mean you never know if he'll be influenced by what happened in the show or or not, but if there's any any area where he would be influenced, I think it would be making Ramsey a bigger deal. Uh I think I, I, I'm sort of wondering sort of what happens to him, not only in the battle, but uh, afterward. And I, I like your your notion that that Roos would kind of get killed in, in Winterfell, because uh, I, I don't think he and Ramsey will die in the battle. I think one of them will. And from the looks of it, I, I think it'll probably be Roos, but it's 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 hard to say. I, there's no real uh, unless. Well, Theon's not even he probably won't factor into the battle because he's with Stannis now and. I don't think he'll be put to death, but uh, he's not going to be fighting. He's a gross, decrepit uh, creature. Uh, so uh, I think Ramsey probably lives to die another day. Wondering what your thoughts on that are. I remember way back, this had to have been four or five years ago, uh, I made a prediction on Reddit that Theon will be the one to kill Ramsey while screaming out in utter, just an utter, you know, unhinged moment. Just snow, snow, it rhymes with low. Um. But uh, I, I'm, honestly, I think it's, you know Ramsey served his narrative purpose. He was the, the the tempter in Theon's tenure, and now he's Theon's tormentor. And now Theon is away, and he might be having his own little bit of resolution relatively soon. So I, you know, there's no there's no more narrative purpose for Ramsey, so he can be disposed of. Similarly, Roose was meant uh-huh. to put the North under a brutal overlordship so that it can be undone. And then set, and you know the, the stakes need to or the set, the stage needs to be set for the conflict between the others and the forces of light. In this case, being uh, Stannis's troops in the siege of Winterfell. And so I, I you know, I, I just think at, at this point their narrative purpose is spent, so they can be safely disposed of. Interesting. Yeah, I mean that 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 fits in line with the Dreadfort, not. Uh factoring in which which also i mean just also from a narrative perspective it kind of gives uh stannis's uh assumed victory at winterfell uh that'll be probably the the peak of his northern adventures and i don't imagine he's gonna have uh i think it's probably gonna be downhill from there just by token of the fact that uh his his narrative purpose there won't be not only will there be not that much for him to do but I mean, beyond, obviously, he's going to uh, still be there, but they're going to need to kind of seed uh, a lot of the what, what book space they have for the North to uh, to John's narrative. That's that's fair. I think also that um, what uh, you can you can get some pretty good stuff. I mean, I could see a great horror chapter. I mean, with, you know, the zombies clawing at the walls. I don't know if you've ever played the uh, Resident Evil where the, the zombies are reaching through yeah. the... Uh, the window at you. The first uh, one? 
Uh, I think that was the second one. The second okay. Resident Evil, there were the zombies were reaching out. You had to actually go by one point, uh, one, you had to go over in one side of the hallway. Otherwise, they could reach out and grab you and make you lose a little health. Um, but I mean, just in terms of scritching at the walls, that'd be crazy. I mean, I even had an idea of if I was going to be the others, because somebody did actually ask me this question. If I was the, the general of the others, how would I exterminate humanity? Because that's always a fun thing to think about. Um, <laughs> I would say that I would actually catapult whites into fortifications. Because yeah. I mean, they're, they're not going to, you know, you're not going to kill them. That's like I mean, the they, pale mire in, uh, in, in oh, uh, Marine. Yeah, well, that, that actually was done. I mean, there's, there's some belief that that was how the Black Plague actually got to Europe, was the Mongols besieging a city oh, right. on, the, on the Black Sea, and then they catapulted plague corpses because their own army was devastated by plague, so they had to withdraw. But that was their little parting gift, and then it spread everywhere. I don't know if necessarily if that's true or not. But certainly uh, using oh, corpses, corpses have been one of the one of the key uh, elements of biological warfare, whether that I mean, usually when they say, you know, we've poisoned a well, usually what that means is they dropped a, a corpse or two of a large beast of burden, a horse or a cow or something into the well. That's usually what they mean when they say they've poisoned a well. So in terms of biological warfare, uh, corpses are probably the oldest a tool along with uh, offal and feces for uh, causing biological damage to your opponent. Yeah, that's uh, that's a that's a charming thought. To, you know, I, I, I as somebody who is uh, underwhelmed by the, I think most people are probably underwhelmed by the the battle of uh, the between the ice zombies and the all the people uh, in season eight, but. It'll be uh, it'll it'll be interesting to see how that kind of stuff factors in in the battle of the uh, of the undead, and not only when when the wall will come down and all of that, and how Stannis will be around, and hopefully we don't get a, a Stannis burning of Shireen, but that, that seems uh, pretty likely. I think the one the one other Stannis related question, just because I have always had a soft spot for Sir Roland Storm, I was wanted to get your thoughts, even though it's totally unrelated to the North on uh whether or not he's still alive or not i think he's he's really one of my favorite of the uh tertiary sort of more irrelevant characters and if we're to believe well there's the conflicting accounts of what happened to uh sir loris tyrell after they took dragonstone uh i wanted to to get your thoughts on that i think he's too cool of a character for george not to keep him in the toolbox yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's I just I, I just think because of all of the characters, he's the only one that I see that actually has a really different spin on the the idea of the seven. I mean, in, in, in our own history, we had I mean, there were heresies and wars and crusades over uh, what what the nature of Jesus was, uh, whether Jesus was a man, whether he was a spirit, whether he was part man, part spirit, whether he was a man who was subsumed. But, and and you know, all of this sounds completely esoteric, but I mean, these are things that people sincerely believed was a matter of spiritual life and death. And the fact that we don't have any of those things is almost certainly because of word space. George didn't want to make any crazy heretical wars where the faith was trying to get itself established on Westeros. Uh, but the fact that we actually have this 
is very fascinating to me in terms of just, even if it's just a one sh- a one note thing that George came up with in order to make Roland Storm really stand out. It's just too interesting to just throw away. That's what I thought. Plus the um, just the notion of uh, somebody's got to be mining the obsidian. I assume obsidian will play a factor later on in whether Daenerys goes to Dragonstone or not, somebody's got to be mining the obsidian now, and that's probably going to be Sir Roland Storm. I also agree that he's uh, too yeah. cool to uh, to be dead, and I, I would love it if he was still alive. But, uh, I mean, yeah, Stannis has a couple of those interesting tertiary characters, like Justin Massey's a uh, pretty good guy. You've got, yeah. um, well, Elaine Mormont is sort of his, uh, one of, she's, one of his soldiers now. I like her chapter with uh, with Asha a lot. He's got such a rich. Um, oh yeah, you know, a- Alice Mormont is great. I love the the chapters with her and Asha because Asha it was starting to experience character growth and realizing the short sightedness of the old way, but she really needed to get it exposed. And chatting with Alice Mormont to the point where she's like, "Look, you, we are what you made us." And it's like, you know, how could you how could you possibly have thought that we were going to let this go and stuff like that? You know, it's it's one thing to to kind of be exposed to kind of the short side, but it's another to just really be dragged through it. And I think I mean, I personally think that Asha is going to end up being the, the queen of salt and rock. And I think that these chapters are going to be in, in, in essence. I mean, certainly Theon had a terrible crucible that he went through. But this is kind of her crucible that's going to turn her from who she was in the second novel to an effective Iron Queen in the epilogue. Yeah, and and the way she's just set up as such a um, Stan, well, Stannis is uncomfortable around most women, but he's he's certainly uncomfortable about her, and she's she's his captive, but she's not a pushover, and even she she stands still stands up to him. I think a lot of people just just by his reputation would be way more afraid to say, you know, I'm no threat to you, take these chains off and all of that. And Stannis, you know, they're obviously not friends, but um, he, one of his great traits is, uh, even though he's sort of, uh, he's very antisocial, he's he's not very friendly, he does, he's open to forming relationships with people, and he forms it with John. Even Melisandre uh, notes in her chapter how uh, Stannis and John are way more similar than anybody would give them credit for. And uh, I, I think that's also probably uh, a little true of, of, of Asha, just the sense that they're very uh, proud, strong-willed people. Yeah, and I think, you know, certainly now they're having a sort of, I mean, Asha had just has to deal with the kind of the institutional sexism that is Westeros. Uh, and so she tends to focus a little bit more pragmatically on things, especially after the the great failure that was Balon Greyjoy. And now she, she goes and she gives her great speech at the King's Moon, where she's like, what did we actually get from all of this? And I think the fact that uh, both Stannis and Asha are, are very practical individuals, I think that there's, even though they don't really express that, they can kind of sense it in the way that each other are thinking and speaking. That I think that, you know, like, you know Stannis says, you know, kings don't have friends in spite of all of the actual positive relationships that he does build with Davos and John. And in this case, I do think that if, if there was some more time that you could, and, or different circumstances, you could actually see a really good relationship, maybe to the point, I don't know, maybe Stannis has always been uncomfortable around women. So that there is that, but um, 
you know, I, I think there could have that could have been. They, I could see worse buddy cop movies. Let's just say, <laughs> I could see worse. You even you see the you see the relationship between uh, the, you know, for lack of a better word, friendship between Stannis and John. Just the you know, he he says to him, "I'll save I'll save your sister if I can." That's a more compassionate side of Stannis than typically used to seeing you know normally Stannis would probably think to himself yeah, I don't really give a shit if she's around or not although obviously she's also a uh uh better uh that it's like the 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 Boba Fett line in Star Wars you know he's no good to me dead uh Arya would be a better asset to him but um well I find that interesting because it's you, you can kind of that scene is built to contrast Stannis and Renly so you have Renly making this big pompous, open, public uh, speech about what he's going to do to show how open and generous he was. Whereas it's a very private moment between Stannis and Catelyn where he says, you know, if, if your daughters live, I will send them to you. So he's gaining nothing. And you can, like, so you can kind of see, you know, Renly, the all flash, no substance. And Stannis, especially in the second book, where he's all substance and no flash, despite the fact that in feudalism you absolutely need flash and style because so much of political power is built in the personal relationship between the king and the vassal. Um, you can kind of see that this is so Stannis, I believe that even if even if both even if he was able to take King's Landing and both Sansa and Arya were, were alive, and everyone would say, and look, you can really use Sansa and Arya as political bargaining chips. Now, certainly he is going to be a big old tactless jackass about, about it because he's Stannis. Um, but I think he actually would have returned Sansa and Arya to say, you know, I said I was going to return them and here they are. Yeah. I mean, you, uh, he's, he's one of those characters, especially in, in, in a uh, clash of Kings when he, it's really one of his sadder moments when he's acknowledging to that, you know, good men will fight for Joffrey, good men will fight for Rob. Uh, people who fought for Renly knew what they were doing, and he has to forgive them. Yep. Um, a more stubborn person would have said, no, I'm not going to forgive him, kill him. I mean, Randall Tarley uh, killed, like, really cruelly killed a lot of Florent men just so Stannis couldn't have them. I, I don't personally see Stannis doing something like that he's a way more he's this character that everybody thinks of as oh he's so stubborn so stubborn then there's dozens of points where this guy listens to people and says oh i will change and he the, the growth of stannis i think that uh it's why it's why it's it's why so many of us have these uh just passionate discussions about the guy yeah well i think he's not actually i think that it's such a misconception in universe that he's stubborn and inflexible i think the problem is is that he, in there are very many things where he is absolutely 100 percent firm on and that's a lot of what people see about him so they extend that yeah. to everything he does sort of like if you see one guy who is just a really good dancer so you believe he dances everywhere he goes it's like he doesn't dance when he's in the office but you know that's what people think I, that's just ridiculous i was just being, just just joking around but <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, Stannis is a is a flexible and intelligent character. And I think that's why we're able to have such a long podcast episode to talk about just one element of his journey. I mean, yeah. and also it's a it's a tremendously good book series. Um, but it, he's such a good character and and 
Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the old school uh, planes, uh, old school role playing games. Planescape Torment is considered one of the best uh, role playing games ever made. One role playing video games ever made. And the reason why people still talk about it is because there's so much substance to talk about. Awesome. Well, Jim, I uh, this this was uh, I, I had a feeling this would be a great discussion, and uh, we uh, certainly did not disappoint. This was. Uh, Really uh, fascinating to listen to and uh, even more to take part in. Uh, and, uh, you know, thank you so much for uh, coming on. This was uh, really, really, uh, this was a, definitely a, a treat to record. And uh, do you want to you tell our audience where we, can, uh, where we can find you? I'll link to all your stuff in, uh, in the description. Well, you can just, I mean, I'm commonly called something like a lawyer. You can find me at Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. Uh, you know, I write a lot of stuff. I answer the questions on uh, Tumblr and I'm, I write essays every so often just, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess if you want to ask me questions to talk about the Tumblr is probably the best place to do. That's usually where I solicit a lot of the questions that I get. Uh, otherwise you can always find me at uh, conventions. Uh, I do actually think I have recordings of all of the panels I've been on, uh, that I try to keep. Uh, and I think I've released a couple of them. Uh, if you find me at a convention, uh, I'm certainly happy to talk to you as long as I'm not talking to somebody else. Uh, so certainly, you know, if, uh, I'm usually in the summers when the conventions I usually go to are. So if that's, if that's more your, uh, bailiwick and you're in the area, by all means, stop on by. I'd love to talk to you. Awesome. Well, thanks again to Jim for coming on and, uh, to the audience. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>